Well, good morning and welcome to The Grove. Before we jump into this morning's sermon, I just want to take a moment to share a little bit about what some new plans are about how we're going to be gathering in person on Sunday morning. Now, many of you received our email that we sent out Friday laying this out, but in case you missed it or didn't read the email or just want a reminder, here is what the plan is for how we will worship in person going forward. Now, last Sunday, because of weather, we were able to come inside and worship together indoors, and it was an awesome experience. And so our plan has kind of pivoted and changed in response to how great it worked last Sunday to be inside together. So for the remainder of the month of March, we will continue to meet outdoors on Sunday morning as planned. Unless there's some incident with weather, unless it's rainy or cold or snow falls again, unless something strange happens with the weather, we'll be meeting outside to hopefully try to take advantage of the beautiful Texas spring. And then in April, we'll have some plans starting on April 11th for gathering together in person, indoors on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. Now, for those of you who are clearly watching this via Church Online, what you should know is that Church Online is not going anywhere. We want to still continue to be able to join together with you and to connect with you no matter where you are or whatever your comfort level is gathering together in person. But we want you to know that we hope that you will continue to consider gathering together with us in person on Sunday mornings. We think that there is no replacement for the way that we are able to worship together in person. So we know that sometimes it's convenient to stay at home, to stay in bed, to not have to rush the kids out. I hope that you will start to break out of those routines, out of that kind of uh, rut that we have gotten in about the comfort and the um, accessibility of church online. What we really want for all of us is to come back to a place where the body of Christ is gathering together in person. Now, for those of you who that's not an option yet or you are out of town, again, we will still have church online. But I do want to encourage you to start making gathering in person a priority. So that's just a little kind of communication about what you can expect from us coming forward on Sunday mornings and just a little encouragement and reminder that we would love to see you in person as much as possible. Now, let's just jump into where we are in this sermon series that we have been talking about for the last several weeks. We are in a new sermon series called, Who Is This Man? This is a series that we are walking through the Gospel of John, and we have been doing so and will continue to do so throughout the season of Lent. The season of Lent is just these 40 days plus Sundays that lead us up into the celebration of Easter. And it's typically understood in the Christian church that Lent is a time of kind of reflection and of kind of refocusing and reprioritizing our lives. And so this morning, we're going to be talking about uh, this question that we've been asking throughout this series. The name of this series, Who is This Man? And the reason that we're going to focus on this question is because this is the question that John focuses on throughout his gospel. And it is an important question because your answer to the question, Who is this man? determines how you respond to that answer. And as we saw last week in Allie's sermon, as Jesus is gathering and calling his disciples, they all come to their own conclusions and their own recognition about who Jesus was. They had a variety of names for him, but ultimately they all recognized that Jesus was God manifested in flesh. Jesus was God personified here on earth. And because of their recognition and because of their answer to the question of who he was, they came to a conclusion and they had an answer for the question about what they were supposed to do in response to it. And so the decision that each of the disciples made was that they were all going to follow Jesus. They were going to kind of commit their lives to demonstrating and participating in the life that he had to offer. 
Allie used this word, kind of apprenticeship. They all kind of adopted an apprenticeship model of Jesus' life. That means they imitated his life. They did what he did. They valued in the same ways that he valued. They prioritized in the same ways that he prioritized. The reason that they constructed their lives in this manner was based on their understanding of the answer to the question of who he was. Now, Allie also gave you a couple of questions last week as you were reading through Scripture together that are really similar to those two questions that we've just discussed. The first question that she gave you as you begin to think about the ways that you were reading Scripture was, what is this Scripture, what does this passage tell me about who God is? And then the second question flows out of and stems off of the answer to that first question. Based on my answer to the first question of who God is, what does this tell me? about what God is calling me to do. So as you see, the whole way that, uh, that John has orchestrated his gospel is based around these two questions. Who is God and what is God calling us to do? The way that we understand how to read scripture is based around these two questions. Who is God? And based on that answer, what is God calling me to do? It's also the way that I believe that we as Christians should think theologically about how we live our lives. Who is God? And what is God calling us to do? I think it is the mental framework through which we should filter and process everything about our lives. Now, whether you realize it or not, you do this already. It may not necessarily be about the Christian God, but we all have adopted some God in our life. And based on the answer of who that God is, what that God values, what that God prioritizes, we have come to conclusion about what that God is calling us to do. Now, what do I mean by this? Well, what the Christian understanding of God or the placement of God in our lives is the thing that we place our trust in. It's the thing that we ascribe ultimate authority in our life. It's the thing that we put our hopes and our beliefs in. And so for many of us, we want that to be the Christian God. We want that to be the God. But oftentimes we allow other things to creep into that place in the status of God and the role of God in our life. This is easily seen all around us. For some of us, the ultimate authority in our life is success. More than anything, we believe that success is the thing that we should put our hopes in, we should put our trust in, that success will lead us to the fullest life possible. For others of us, it's security. We believe that if we can have enough money in the bank or the right type of health system we can have the security that we long for in our lives. And so we orient our lives around trying to gain more and more security because of the hope that we have in it, of the promise that it makes to us about the way that our life will go. For others of us, maybe trying to be well-liked, trying to be popular, trying to have the high opinion of other people in your life ends up taking the highest priority and the highest authority in your life. So what does that mean? It means that you believe that if you could be liked by everybody, that would ultimately bring you all of the satisfaction, all of the meaning, all of the things that you long for in this life, that the fullest life possible, the fullest life available to you is found in being well-liked. This is something that happens all the time and is easy to do, that we place these other gods in the place of the God in our life. But ultimately, what all of this is pointing to is how important these two questions are. What does this say about God? And based on the answer of what this says about God, what is God calling you to do? So if you're sitting here hearing this for the first time and you're saying, Stephen, uh, how do I know whether or not I have the right God in my life? Well, one of the ways that you can measure that, one of the ways that you can discern that is to begin to evaluate your actions. 
What do your priorities look like? What do your values look like? How are you acting? You see, that second question, what is this God calling me to do, leads you back to the question of who is this God and what does it say about this God? So if you spend all of your energies, if you spend all of your time trying to climb the corporate ladder, if you, you know, prioritize that over time with your family or time with your friends, if all of your energies and focus and passions and hopes and aspirations and dreams are centered around the highest place you can climb in your profession, it's a pretty good indicator that that might be your God because most of your choices and actions and values and priorities are centered around what that God is telling you to do. Same with all of the other categories, all of the other possible gods, status, success, wealth, fame, popularity. It could even be romance, the belief that if you were really well loved by a special someone, that that would bring you all of the fulfillment and meaning in your life. And so you spend your life trying to chase these relationships. So if you don't know and you aren't sure what this God is or who this God is, it is often that you can trace your actions back to the answer to that question. So why do I spend so much time on this? Why are we kind of drilling down these questions? Who is God? What does this say about God? And what does this say about our actions that this God is calling us to do? Because this is the framework that we should live our whole lives on. This is the framework that we're going to see in this passage that we're going to look at today. This is the framework I think that oftentimes kind of bubbles up and percolates up as we think about the season of Lent. You see, in the season of Lent, it's oftentimes framed as this period of time where we have to do a lot of extra stuff so that we can draw closer to God, so that God will maybe uh, bring us favor, so that you know, something will happen in our relationship between us and God. And so inevitably, you have these conversations with your friends centered around Lent and you ask questions like, oh, what are you giving up this season for Lent? Or, oh, what are you going to do for Lent this year? It's like there's some penance that we have to pay. Well, if you just think about the way that we're processing those questions and we're thinking about this season, it reveals a lot about who we believe God is. Because based on what we think this God is calling us to do or not do or the things that we're supposed to give up, it says a lot about our understanding of God. So if you think that this God during this season is calling you to give up chocolate or coffee or alcohol, what does that say about your understanding of who that God is? See, here's the point of all of this. Here's why I've gone on and on about these two questions so far this morning. It's because it is oftentimes our understanding of God, our limited understanding of who God is and what God is calling us to do that blocks us from experiencing the fullest life that God is offering to us. It's not because we're bad people or because we're dumb. It's because we get confused and we get our priorities mixed up and because we misunderstand who God is and what God is calling us to do. Sometimes our good intentions get in the way of the life that God is inviting us into. As we've talked about the last two weeks, there is this participation that God is extending to each of us. The Gospel of John talks again and again about this idea of eternal life. And it is not about this kind of time-based life without end, but it's about a fullness and a richness and an abundance of life available for us here and now. It's the best possible life we could live. And this is what John is saying throughout his gospel that Jesus is offering us participation into. There's an invitation extended to each of us. And so what we see, though, in this story that we're going to look at is the way that we think about who God is and what God is calling us to do oftentimes determines and it can at times block and interrupt our ability to participate in the life that God offers to us. So 
It's a long setup, but let's jump into the scripture and you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. So we're going to be in the third chapter of John and we're going to be starting in verse one and we're going to be talking about a man named Nicodemus. So let's jump in. Now, there was a Pharisee named Nicodemus, a leader of the Jews, and he came to Jesus by night. Now, when we read this, we already oftentimes bring in some assumptions and some biases about people who were called Pharisees. But what we need to understand is at that time, in that cultural moment, Nicodemus would have been kind of the most moral, the most religious, one of the most wealthy and successful individuals in society. He would not have been somebody who would have been condemned or criticized. He would have been an aspirational figure. He would have been somebody that all of the other people of that time looked up to. They wanted to be like, but knew that they would never be able to be like. He was like this icon or this status symbol, you know, this influencer of society and of culture and of their religious time. So Nicodemus is not this bad guy that you know, we've kind of translated him into today. Nicodemus was this very sincere, very earnest, very diligent, faithful person. So Nicodemus, he's a leader of the Jews and he comes to Jesus by night and he has a question. Now what we can infer by some of these details, because anytime the writer of the gospels mentions certain specific details, the level of specificity is an indicator that they're trying to communicate something. So Jesus was a nobody. Jesus was kind of this traveling figure, saying some things, performing some miracles, and people were starting to murmur about him. But somebody at the highest level of the religious system of the time decides to come to Jesus because he believes something about Jesus. He's curious about what Jesus is teaching and what Jesus has to offer, which is how we know based on the detail that he comes to Jesus by night. He, wasn't, he doesn't want anybody to know. It's kind of like, hey, Jesus, meet me behind the alley. I got a couple of questions for you. I don't want all of my other religious peers to see me talking to you because you haven't been endorsed by the Jewish society and the Jewish religious system. But he comes to Jesus and he says, Rabbi, which is a title that infers significance, that infers status, that infers authority. So he's like, Jesus, I recognize that you're a teacher. We know you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do apart from the presence of God. Nicodemus is kind of inquiring like, hey, how are you doing what you're doing? There's got to be something related to you and your connection and your relationship to God. I'm not quite sure what it is. And so Jesus answers him. He says, listen, I mean this. No one can see the kingdom of God without being born again. Now this idea of the kingdom of God would have been known to Nicodemus. It wasn't like a literal earthly kingdom where there was a, you know, a king and a ruler. It was about this experience that people could participate into where things were ordered according to God's priorities, according to God's values. It had been really similar to the understanding of how life might have been like in the Garden of Eden. This is what Jesus is talking about. The way that life is supposed to work, the way that life was created and intended and ordered, the way that it's supposed to move and happen, no one can experience that without being born again. Now, in our kind of Western Christian culture and context, that word, those words born again have been used in a whole lot of different ways. And so without going into all of the different implications that you might be bringing into those two words, let me tell you that the way that we typically use them in kind of evangelical Christianity today is not the original intent 
of what those words mean in the original language. It has two meanings. The first is you're being born anew. It's not about a momentary thing that happens in time. It's not about a decision you make and then your status is ultimately changed. It's not about earning enough coupons to exchange them in for a ticket to heaven. That's not what this idea of being born again is talking about. It's about being born anew. It's about an opportunity to participate in a new way of life. That's the first meaning. The second meaning is it's this idea of being born from above. So maybe in some of your translations, if you're reading along with us this morning, it doesn't even say you must be born again. It says you must be born from above. Again, this shifts the impetus and the the focus on who the primary actor is. In our modern understanding, we believe that being born again is something that we do. It's a choice that we make about something that we pray or say or the focus or the orientation of our life. But in this context... In the original context, what Jesus is saying is that there is something that can happen to you. There is a way that you can be born anew, this opportunity for you to participate in a new way of life that is totally involuntary to your actions and to your effort. It's something that comes from above. This is something that happens to you based on God's act, God's movement in your life. Now, the best understanding that we have of this concept of something that is happening, initiated by God at work in our own lives, regenerating and renewing our lives into a new way of life, is this really simple word called grace. It's the unmerited, unearned favor of God, acting, transforming us, renewing us in our own lives. This is kind of this idea that Jesus is talking about here. He's saying, listen, if you want to participate in life, as God intended it, if you want to participate in the kingdom of God, the way that God is at work in the world, the way that God has ordered the world, the way that things are supposed to go to experience the fullest life possible, if you want to be able to participate in that, what you have to do is you have to be born again. And so then Nicodemus does what many of us would do. He begins to ask a bunch of questions because he doesn't quite understand. And the reason that he doesn't understand is based on his understanding of who God is and how God works in the world and what God is asking him to do. See, Nicodemus is a Jew. He understands that there's a series of rules that you have to ascribe to, a series of commands that you have to follow. And based on your fidelity to those commands, your ability to be obedient to those commands determines your proximity, your relationship, your status with God. And so, of course, the question that Nicodemus asks following Jesus's command is, What do I have to do to be born again? How can I be born again? There must be something that I contribute. There must be some way that I participate in this process. And they go round and round and round as you can read down in the verses. And really, Nicodemus continues to struggle to understand. Jesus kind of concludes it with this. Nicodemus says to Jesus, how can these things be? And Jesus answers him, aren't you a teacher of Israel? And yet you don't understand these things? And again, that just emphasizes this point that what we believe about God and who God is determines our understanding of what God is calling us to do. See, for Nicodemus, the way that he understood who God was was that God was requiring him to do a bunch of things, to be faithful to a bunch of rules and commands. And the point of the relationship between God and Nicodemus was his fidelity or his faithfulness in all of those commands. And what Jesus shows is is it's something more than that. You see, Nicodemus was as moral and as religious as anybody in that society could have been. And so 
when Nicodemus is asking how he can participate in a relationship with God, how he can participate in eternal life, in the fullest life possible, Jesus doesn't say that he needs more morality or more religion. It doesn't say, hey, Nicodemus, you're two-thirds of the way there. Just keep going. You're on the right track. He doesn't say, hey, Nicodemus, you're a really moral and religious guy. Let me give you some additional kind of religious vitamins or supplements to help kind of take you over the top. He doesn't look at other people and say, well, Nicodemus is more ahead than you. You're only a quarter of the way, and so you're going to have to catch up. This isn't, that isn't the command that Jesus gives Nicodemus. When Nicodemus is asking how he can participate in the life that God offers, God doesn't give him more morality. He doesn't give him more religion. He says, Nicodemus, you have to be born anew. You have to recognize that there is this different way to participate in the life that God offers. It's not about earning. It's not about striving. It's not about all the things that you can do to gain access into this life. You know, it's, it's similar in a way for us um, to when you're really loved well by somebody. Now, this can be in a romantic relationship. This can be in a friendship. This can be in a parent-child relationship. But when you're loved well by somebody, there is a freedom that you experience. There is a security. There is an openness. Um, there is a willingness to be vulnerable in a way that you don't experience those insecurities. And the reason is because you recognize that your status in that relationship, the connection that the two of you share is secure. There's not a bunch of things that you have to do. You don't feel compelled to do a bunch of things to maintain the quality of that relationship. Maybe for you, you have a parent or two sets, you have both of your parents who have really loved you well your whole life. And you recognize that you could do all of the wrong things in the world and they would still love you. Or maybe you have a significant other and that's the type of love that the two of you share, that you feel really safe to be yourself, that you don't have to meet all of the deadlines and meet all of the expectations, that you don't constantly feel like you're falling short. Maybe that's the type of love that you get to participate in. Or maybe you're a parent and you recognize that there's nothing your child could do. Even if they did the worst things in the world, you may not be happy about the choices they made, but you would still love them. This is the essence of what Jesus is trying to help Nicodemus understand about the way that he can be born anew to participate in this life-giving relationship with God. Because you see, when there's an insecure relationship, when the love is um, not unconditional, you're always on edge. You're always worrying about, did you do enough? You're always worrying about how do they feel about me? Do I need to try harder? Do I need to do more? Are they happy? Are they unhappy? How do they feel about me? There's this level of insecurity and anxiety that constantly stays in the relationship. My guess is you've all experienced this in some way or another in one relation dynamic or another. This is kind of what can happen to us as religious people. We think that our relationship with God is based on all of the things that we do, all of the ways that we get it right, that we, if we can earn enough tokens or enough tickets based on the good deeds and the good choices that we make, that one day we can cash them in for a prize that takes us to heaven. This is this very transactional understanding that we have about what it means to participate in the life that God offers us. And Jesus is saying, listen, you're limited in your understanding of who God is and what God is calling you to do because of this understanding. You need to expand your understanding. You need to be born again. You need to have a new way of understanding how the world works. And so in maybe perhaps the most famous verse in all of scripture, 
Jesus summarizes this conversation with Nicodemus. He summarizes this understanding of how we can participate in the life that God offers to us, what it looks like, who God is, and what God is calling us to do. And this is in John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Now, my guess is some of you were raised in a church that you understood that in a transactional nature, that you had to be born again so that you could avoid perishing, that you could avoid punishment, and that you could get a ticket to eternal life. But really, that's a limitation in our understanding of who God is and what God is calling us to do. You see, in the context of this conversation with Nicodemus, John 3.16 describes the loving nature of a father who is willing to go to any end to maintain and restore relationship with his children. And it's just by participating in the life that he already offers to us that we can experience this eternal life. It's not about how many things we do right. It's not about how much we get wrong. It's not about how moral or religious we are. But it's about accepting the gift of grace that is offered to us. And so perhaps... Nicodemus and his story and his conversation with Jesus is the perfect story for us during the season of Lent. The season where we often think about Lent as a time where we have to do more to maintain our relationship with God, where we're called to try harder, to dig in deeper. Now, it's about renewing our understanding of who God is, a God of love and grace that invites us to freely participate in the life that is offered to us right here right now, without any exception. Friends, let me pray for our time together and we'll conclude our service. Let's pray. Gracious God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this opportunity to be reminded of who you are, that you are a God of love and grace who is constantly inviting us into relationship with you. God, help us to trust in who you are and to trust that what you are calling us to do is not a series of tasks to earn your love, but a way to live out of the love that you have already offered us, a way that your spirit can be at work in our lives, your grace can begin to transform us, not by our own efforts, not by our own striving, not by our own doing, God, but by the active work of your spirit in our lives. God, help us to recognize who you are and to understand who you were calling us to be in response to that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.